70 years, Judah has been in exile in Babylon, and this exile has now come to an end. God has sent a prophet, the prophet Haggai, to preach his word to his people. One recent scholar has made the point of the preaching of Haggai by stating that Israel's 70 years of exile had given way to a new era in which Israel might once again live in the promised land, renew the covenant, and enjoy Yahweh's blessings. Prophecy was coming true in Haggai's own lifetime, and the question was what the fulfillment would look like in lived experience. God sent Haggai, and as an expression of the power of his word, to confront and to transform and to instill hope in his people. And to do this, he gives to Haggai four messages or four sermons to preach to the people. I would invite you, if you would, take your copy of God's word and turn with me in the Old Testament to the little book of Haggai. We were there last Lord's Day, and we'll be there again today. If you don't know where Haggai is, find Matthew, first book in the New Testament, and take three turns to the left, and you'll be there. That's where Haggai is. He is the first in a grouping of three works by men whom we refer to as post-exilic prophets. And their role was a role of confrontation, a role of transformation, and a role of instilling hope into a people that had recently been restored to their homeland, that homeland that still lay in ruins. A desolation had been wrought upon that southern kingdom, and in particular, the city of Jerusalem had been destroyed, the walls had been torn down, the buildings and the temple itself had been burned And still the effects of that destruction by Babylon so many years prior could still be felt and could still be seen. And Haggai and Zechariah and later Malachi are all sent to preach God's word to the people. The people had come through an exile of devastation and now found themselves faced with the daunting prospect of rebuilding a nation. They were longing for God to fulfill his promises that he had given even generations before. It had been many years since the prophet Isaiah had preached that God was one day going to restore his people and fill the earth with his glory. Not so many years, but still many years prior, Jeremiah had come and preached about the dawning of the day of a new covenant in which God would take his law and write it on their hearts, and he would forgive their sin, and they would all know God. No one would have to teach his brother anymore, saying, know the Lord, because they would all in this new covenant day know him. 
Not quite as long back as Jeremiah, there was a man by the name of Ezekiel who had preached of a future coming day when God would take the dry bones of the nation and form them together as a new man. And through the preaching and prophetic word of God, he would clothe them with skin. He would breathe into them the breath of life. And they would literally become like a new people. Well, this great hope for the future had carried many of these people through years of exile. It is true that Jeremiah the prophet had told the people when they went to Babylon that you should, you should plant yourselves there. You should plant gardens. You should, you should live in homes. You should do business. You should make money. But we know from the Psalms that there were many days when the people of Israel found themselves hanging their harps upon the willows weeping and longing for the day that they would come back to Jerusalem. An Old Testament scholar by the name of Wilhelm von Gemmeren made the comment in the 20th century, he said, During the exile, the godly lived in the hope of the prophetic promise of the dawning of a new era. The realization of the Lord's presence to bring blessing and protection in greater fullness and glory among his people. The oracles of deliverance held out the hope that the people of God would again enjoy the promises, the covenants, the transformation of nature, and the state of shalom or peace. And this would all be under the protection of the Lord and his messianic king. Well, this era of restoration, von Gemmeren goes on to say, gradually came into focus in the progress of fulfillment. You might think of the decree of Cyrus in 538 B.C., permitting the people to return. This was an answer to their faithful prayers that they had offered in the book, for example, of Lamentations and Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. When the Jews finally did return, he adds, they came back in small numbers, maybe some 50,000 or so. Great was the joy of the new generation when they reinstituted the temple services. But you might recall, as we read last week, great too was the weeping of the oldest people. People who could remember the glory of the former temple. And great was the hope, though, within them for the restoration of the temple and that the messianic age might one day dawn upon them. Well, it was into this scene, this kind of a picture of joy and of weeping, of hope and of sorrow, God sent Haggai. And along with Haggai, he sent another prophet by the name of Zechariah. We'll say more, Lord willing, about him in a few moments. There are four messages in these two chapters. Yes, somebody squeezed four whole sermons into two little chapters of the Bible. That's miraculous. I don't think I could have done that. I could not have squeezed four whole sermons into two little bitty chapters. But God does. And we don't know if these are the full sermons or these are like a condensed kind of a narrative that God gives us through Haggai. But you find them, if you're looking in your Bible, you can find them in chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. It says that the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, 
And then there's a brief summation there. And then in verse 3, the word of the Lord came by Haggai. And this is somewhat the continuation of that same sermon. So the first sermon is in verses 1 to 11 of chapter 1. The second sermon is in chapter 2 in verses 1 through 9. And then the third sermon is in chapter 2, verses 11 through 19. And then the final sermon is the passage that Josh just read for us, chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. Now, these four sermons have, have an interesting relationship. They, they, they kind of lay out for us in a structure that we could see as a chiastic structure, like an A, B, A, B pattern. A is a sermon of reproof. The second A is also a sermon of reproof. Letter B, the first B is a sermon of hope, and the last sermon, letter B, is a sermon of hope. Let me just kind of break that down for you a little more. The first sermon in chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, this is a sermon of reproof. He is reproving the people because they've been in the land now for a few years, and they've grown a little sloppy, and they've grown a little slack. And they have not carried on the work of rebuilding the temple. They've built their own homes. They've taken care of their own fields. They've taken care of their own business. But their fields haven't really produced much, and their businesses haven't really produced much. And their own homes probably aren't as glorious as they could have been. God has not really blessed their labors. Why? Because they've put themselves ahead of the things of God. God commanded them through the prophet. He didn't command them, go back, plant a field, start your business, and build your own house. No, he commanded them to go back and to build the temple again and to build the city. So he comes to them in verses 1 to 11 and says to them several times, consider your ways in verse 5, consider your ways in verse 7. He reproves them. But then in chapter 2 and verses 1 to 9, the second sermon is a sermon of hope. He tells them about how things are looking right now, and they're not looking very glorious in regard to the temple, but there's coming a day of future glory for the temple of God. He promises that his own glory will one day come back and fill the temple and establish peace in the land. And then the third sermon in chapter 2, verses 11 to 19, is again a sermon of reproof. He rebukes them in verse 11 and says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priest for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold or crooked food or cooked food, wine and oil or any other food, will it become holy? Does food become holy just because you carry it in your garments? You bring it to the temple or bring it to where you would have a temple if you would build the temple? Haggai goes on and says, If one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered, it will become unclean. Then Haggai said, so is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. In other words, they are an unclean people. But now consider from this day on, or before one stone is placed on another in the temple of the Lord, from that time when one came to a grain heap of 20 measures, there'd be only 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there'd be only 20. There's not the bounty that they were hoping for. God says there in verses 17 and 18 that he is disciplining them. He's, he's smoting them, he says. But at the end of the sermon, in verse 19, he says, from this day on, I, I will bless you. But, 
this sermon by and large is a sermon again of reproof. But that end of verse 19 gives us hope for a future word, and that comes in the last sermon in verses 21 through 23. And this too is a sermon of hope, and this is the sermon that we really come to today. In this fourth message to which we we come back in a sense, we began to open this up last week, but we want to unpack it more fully today. We find a word of hope. And this is the way Haggai and the way many prophets would end their letters, their writings. They would end with a word of hope. Let's go back there and let's read again with all that said, these brief verses, this brief sermon. Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, this is the same day that the third sermon had been delivered, and now a second sermon, fourth sermon total, but the second sermon on that same day. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. Now this sermon is in particular for Zerubbabel himself as the governor of of the people. I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shiltiel, my servant declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. From this message, along with sermon number two, some themes from which are reiterated here, the people were to take hope in the future promissory work of God, who, as from the fall of man, way back in the garden, had promised the sending of a future messianic ruler who would destroy all their enemies and set up an everlasting kingdom that would never be destroyed. In other words, the thoughts of Haggai in this sermon to Zerubbabel, they stretch forward into the future and they reach far back into the past because this is the fulfillment of What he's speaking of in the future is the fulfillment of that hope that he had given them way back in the beginning when Adam and Eve fell in the garden. Now, last time we highlighted several points taken from this text, among others, that pointed the people to this promissory work of the Lord. So if you're taking notes today and you're looking for somewhat of an outline, let me give you four things that you can kind of grab onto as we look through this text again. Point number one is this, and they're not neatly alliterated. I feel ashamed and need to confess, but here they are, all right? Point number one is this, the language of the sermon and the surrounding context give a future-oriented look to the prophecy's fulfillment. The language of the sermon and the surrounding context give a future-oriented look to the prophecy's fulfillment. And I'll give these again, just leave some space, I guess, in your notes. There are some sheets at the back of the worship guide you can, you can use there. Point number two, 
The sermon explicitly contains what I would call a new covenant pointer. The sermon explicitly contains a new covenant pointer. Point number three, the sermon provides a messianic figure through whom the prophecy will be fulfilled. The sermon provides a messianic figure through whom the prophecy will be fulfilled. And one final point, the prophecy is demonstrated as fulfilled or at the very least inaugurated in a new covenant text. Now, if you have your notes from last week and you're looking at those, you're thinking, well, sound really kind of familiar because they are kind of the four points that we gave you toward the end of last week's sermon. But point number three and four, if you're comparing your notes with last week, have been reversed. So we will end on that new covenant text. So number one, we're going to look at the language of the sermon. Number two, uh, a new covenant pointer. Number three, this messianic figure. Maybe you've already guessed it's Zerubbabel. And point number four, we're going to look at a new testament or a new covenant text. Let's unpack these a little more fully. Number one. The language of the sermon. The language of the sermon and the surrounding context give a future-oriented look to the prophecy's fulfillment. A future-oriented look. Well, let's start in the sermon itself. The sermon itself, this fourth sermon, in verse 21, we find the statement, I will overthrow the thrones. Now, this is the sermon to Zerubbabel. I am going to Shake the heavens and the earth in verse 21, I am going to. Verse 22, I will overthrow the thrones of the kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations, and I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses, and their riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. Verse 23, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shiltiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring. Five times in those three verses, God says he will do something. Look more broadly at the context of the book of Haggai itself. Look back to sermon number two. Sermon number two, again, this is a sermon that has the theme of hope. The sermons that are full of reproof are very present tense oriented. He's reproving them for what they're doing right now. But the sermons of hope are are couched in future terminology. Uh, Verse 6, chapter 2 in verse 6, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more, in a little while. Or later, in verse 6, he says, Um, I guess we could say, I am going to, we could look at that there. And then in verse 7, I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all the nations. And then at the very end, I will fill this house with glory. Look down again in verse 9. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord. Now then I mentioned earlier at the end of Sermon 3, which is a sermon of reproof, but at the end of Sermon 3, there's like a little moment of light. So look there in verse 19. Yet from this day on I will bless you. 
I didn't count all those up, but there are five in the fourth sermon. Uh, there are mm, seven in the second sermon and one in the third sermon. All these I wills. All of these individually and cumulatively point to a future for their hope that is sure and, listen, it is certain. Thus, not only are these terms pointing beyond their present experience, they're also pointing to something that God himself pledges that he will do. There's, there's no if-then relationship in these messages of hope. If you do all these things, then I will do these things. No, this is, this is, a, this is a one-sided statement by God. God says, I will do these things. Things. Consider here that hope is found herein for the man of faith. The one who has faith that what God has promised, he is also willing and able to perform. In this sense, God is calling through Haggai to the people of Judah that they would be like Abraham himself, who it says in Romans chapter 4 that with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was also able to what? To perform. Now, we, we sit here in our chairs and our air-conditioned room and We've had breakfast and we've had lunch. We have a comfy life or whatever. And here we are, we're like, it's difficult to really feel what they probably felt. There they were, standing before this unfinished temple. They are opposed by the surrounding nations. They're opposed by the Samaritans. We saw them last time there in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. They're trying to build the temple, but people are causing all kinds of obstacles for them. They have every reason to doubt and to wonder, will this ever come to pass? And God sends them Haggai through the preaching of the word, and he reminds them of his promises of what he, what God himself is committed to do. There has been no demand here at this point, not in these sermons in this sense. God is simply saying what he will do. I think we have to keep that in mind because later on we're going to relate this in the coming weeks to the work of Christ and his church and what he will do in the church. We will look specifically, uh, Lord willing, in a couple of Sundays, uh, Tim Decker's coming next Sunday to preach for us. And so I hope to come back in a couple of weeks and look at Matthew chapter 16. And what did Jesus come and say? I will build my church. Do you hear the, the definitive nature of that? Do you hear the emphatic statement of that? Do you hear Jesus saying at all in there, I'll build my church if you get it done? No, he just says, I'm going to what? I'm going to build my church. Realize the church is the only institution on the planet that Christ has promised emphatically to build. He has promised to build no parachurch organization. He has promised to build his church. Well, in the broad context of Scripture, that's what we're talking about here, but we're, we're not quite there yet. When you consider the promises that God has made to you in Christ Jesus, what is your response? 
to look at what's around you, to look at where things are, or to take him at his word to trust that he will do all the things that he has promised to do. Number two, this sermon explicitly contains what I've called here a new covenant pointer. In other words, there's something in this sermon that is pointing us to its fulfillment in another day. Not just tomorrow, but a future orientation to the sermon. Notice in Haggai 2, in verse 23, the opening words in the New American Standard are, On that day. They may seem like inconsequential words to you. They may just seem like, maybe like a time reference. Okay, it's going to happen on a day or later. But he's not just talking about on that day, as in that 24-hour day, or it's like on your planner or on your watch or on your phone, and, you know, we've set an alarm, it's going to go off. This is more in keeping with the idea of the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians when he says, in the fullness of time, God brought forth the son born of a woman born under the law. On that day, or phrases like this, and we'll look at a few of them, this is is common parlance among the prophets for pointing toward a coming day for the restoration of Israel a future mission to the nations or the Gentiles, and the fulfilling of God's promises of redemption. We can't take time to look up all of these. Let me just mention a few of them. Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7 in verse 11. Jeremiah chapter 30 in verse 8. Let me do take you to a couple in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11 Verse 11. Isaiah 11, verse 11. Now, you're familiar, probably, with Isaiah chapter 11. You may be more familiar with it than you think you are. Um, Isaiah chapter 11 is this uh, text where it talks about in the future, there is going to spring forth from the stem of Jesse a branch. And it's this picture of, uh, of, of someone coming, a descendant of Jesse, Remember Jesse? Jesse was the father of David. Yeah, all right. So we have David, and then it's going to come from the stem of David, and eventually we're going to get to the Messiah. But it's interesting in Isaiah chapter 11, in verse 11, um, and here's our phrase. I'm sorry, back up to verse 10. It says, then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse. So we have the, the stem of Jesse, someone coming after Jesse, and we have the root of Jesse, someone coming before Jesse, and in fact, uh, when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, we come to the one who is from the stem of Jesse, and he is the root of Jesse as well. But let your eyes fall down the page, one verse to Hebrews, Hebrews, excuse me, Isaiah 11.11. Isaiah 11.11, then it will happen on that day. He's looking for a future. This is a future messianic day when the Lord will come full of the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord, Isaiah 11, 2, the Spirit of the Lord rests upon him. Um, And this is the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 11, it says, It will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people 
who will remain, and from Assyria and Egypt and Pathros and Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed ones of Judah from the four corners of the earth. He's talking here about the new covenant restoration of Israel and the extension of the mission to the nations. And it happens on that day. Chapter 12 and verse 1 still in this same context of new covenant manifestation or the new covenant realization of God's plan, then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For although you are angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. This is the the response of joy and thanksgiving and worship that God's people respond to him with in light of the salvation he's wrought by the sending of his Messiah. And it all happens on that day. It is akin to other prophetic phrases. And we have one, if you're still here in Isaiah chapter um, uh, 12, look in chapter 12, verse 4. And in that day you will say. Chapter 12, verse 1, on that day. Chapter 12, verse 4, in that day. Interestingly, in the book of Zechariah, and we won't take time to go through these, the phrase in that day (coughs) is used some 20 plus times just in the book of Zechariah itself. Now, what does that matter? It matters to me because Zechariah gives me good context for Haggai. Because Haggai and Zechariah did what? They preached together. All right. Um, a few months ago, a month or so ago, Ryan preached, and I'm coming up here and I'm preaching. And a month or two, Ryan's going to come back and preach, and we're going to kind of swap back and forth like that. And certainly the hope is that Ryan and I aren't going to contradict one another when we're in the pulpit. It could happen. All right. Uh, we have the comfort to know that Haggai and Zechariah are inspired prophets of God, and contradiction does not happen. Or another way to phrase this, this is a very common one in the book of Isaiah itself, at that time. At that time. In other words, God has a specific time in mind. Again, it's not the kind of time that you think of with your, with your watch or your phone or your alarm. But it is a point at which he will intervene. And in his action, he will fulfill verses 22 and verses 23 of Haggai 2. So turn back there for a moment to Haggai chapter 2. Now we're going to come back and, and unpack a little more of this phrase at the beginning of the sermon. The opening line of the sermon is, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. Now you can find more about that back in uh, chapter 2 in the second sermon where he talks about shaking the heavens and the earth in verse 6 and in verse 7. But when he comes in this fourth sermon, he says, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. Two things are going to happen. Number one, there is going to be an overthrow of kingdoms. An overthrow or a toppling of the kingdoms of the world. Look there in verse 22. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations or the Gentiles. 
and their riders and horses, and their riders will go down every one by the sword of another. It's, it's interesting when you see that phrase, the riders and the horses, the horse and its rider, you have done what? You have cast into the sea. This is the phraseology that is used on the shores of the Red Sea when Pharaoh and his enemies are cast into the sea, and the sea comes back on them, and uh, Miriam and the ladies, they sing and they dance, and there's a song that's taught to them, and one of the parts of the song is the horse and the rider you've thrown into the sea. And this happens, this, this phraseology is used at other points in the Bible, and here I think it's being alluded to. In other words, there is going to come a day when, like the toppling of Egypt, God is going to topple the kingdoms and nations and the powers of the world. These kingdoms and nations of powers and, and powers in the world are the kinds of people, the kind of groups or entities that stand against Christ and against his people and against the advancement of his kingdom in the world. But again, to quote from Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not what? They will not overpower it. There will be no enemy that can ever stand against the advancement of the kingdom of God in the world. And this is what's going to happen. When he shakes the heavens and shakes the earth, the kingdoms of the world will come toppling down. But there's a second thing that's going to happen on that day. Or again, I, I know it's difficult because we, we just think about a day. We, we could even phrase this in that time. At that time, something else is going to happen. Not only are the kingdoms of the world going to begin to unfold and be destroyed, on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, the son of Shilti, on my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. In the time of the fulfillment of this prophecy, there is going to be the overthrow of kingdoms, and there's going to be the enthronement of one who is like a king. Or we could say there's going to be the enthronement of a king, and Zerubbabel is one here who is like a king. God will intervene and bring to nothing the kingdoms of men and set up a new kingly figure in Zerubbabel. Now this leads us to a third point, to consider Zerubbabel himself as a messianic figure. So point number three is this. The sermon provides a messianic figure through whom the prophecy will be fulfilled. Zerubbabel is the governor. He's not a king. He is in the kingly line. But at this particular point in time, uh, the nation of, of Judah, the southern kingdom, is not a kingdom standing on its own. It is under the tutelage, if you will, of the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. You have guys like Cyrus and Darius that have uh, sent, uh, sent them back. Zerubbabel is a political leader, however, of a fledgling people. And God says in this text that he is going to take him. It's a very um, kind of an aggressive term. I'm going to take you, all right? And I'm going to make you to be my servant. Now, we've seen this language uh, many times, again, in the Old Testament. Uh, Cyrus himself is referred to as God's servant. But if you think about the, 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 
the, the larger background and the concept of being God's servant, one would have to go to the book of Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, there is a figure that is known as the servant of the Lord. And the servant of the Lord is none other than the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. You can read about the, uh, uh, the servant of the Lord. Uh, if you look back in the book of Isaiah, uh, beginning in Isaiah 42, uh, the servant of the Lord comes up in four different contexts, uh, very specifically in the book of Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah 42, um, if you're just making notes, you can look these up later on. Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 9. Isaiah 49, verses 1 to 13. Isaiah 50, verses 4 to 11. And then a longer text, Isaiah 52, verse 13 through 53, 12. These all point to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. They are, they are texts, and the broader contexts around them are used in the New Testament, often even by Jesus himself or by the gospel writers to refer specifically to the one that Isaiah was speaking about. God is going to take Zerubbabel and make him his servant. But he says something else about him. He says, I'm going to make you my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you a like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, the signet ring was something that would have been worn by the king. Would have been worn by the king to signify his authority, his uh, his, his right to enact laws, and maybe you can imagine one of those uh, old movies you've, you've seen about the king or whatever. He has a big ring and a wax seal, and he, he impresses that into, the, into the, little, the, the little wax dobble that's on the, on the thing, and it leaves his imprint. And they can see that. They know this is, this is something authentic. It's, it's from the king. Zerubbabel's grandfather or great-grandfather, I'm, I'm not sure exactly which one he was, uh, had the signet ring taken away from him when they were taken captive into Babylon. But making Zerubbabel, this governor, this political figure, back in the promised land, making him like a new signet ring, was a picture of the restoration of authority and even, in a sense, kingship to the people of God. Now, though Zerubbabel would not be the king, it is important to keep in mind that there would come from Zerubbabel one who would be king. Now, we're going to, Lord willing, get into the genealogy here soon in Matthew chapter 1, and you will find that in the line of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, stands one by the name of Zerubbabel. In other words, Zerubbabel is a descendant of David. He had every right as a son of David to be king, but he could not be king since they were ruled by another country at the time. I think a little bit of context from the book of Zechariah might help us as well. And again, remember Zechariah and Haggai worked together. They, they kind of preached together. Turn over, if you would, to the book of Zechariah. Just one turn to the right, if you're wondering where that one is. And let's, let's go to Zechariah chapter 4. We can't spend a lot of time on this. I, I have more things I want us to get to. 
and, um, and I can't afford to have three introductory sermons on one introductory point. Never going to get to Matthew. But Zechariah chapter 4, let's look here. It is a long vision in chapter 4, verses 1 to 10, and it has rich things to say about God's future plan to, uh, to uh, establish his temple and to, to make it uh, reach far into the world. But notice what happens uh, in verse 6. Zechariah 4, 6, Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Now this is God's word to Zechariah. Earlier we've been reading about God's word to Haggai, saying to Zerubbabel. Now it's God's word to Zechariah to say to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. What is this about? It would seem that the great mountain is an obstacle. And the obstacle that Zerubbabel and Haggai and Joshua and the remnant faced were the opposing countries that were constantly coming in, trying to keep them from making progress on the building of the temple. But what are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? Before Zerubbabel, who has the promise of the Spirit of God upon him, the great mountain will become a plain. The obstacle, in other words, will become removed and the temple will be built. Also in verse 8, also the word of the Lord came to me saying again, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house and his hands will finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you for who has despised the day of small things? Surely, when they stood there and looked at the foundation as it was, we could read back about this in Haggai chapter 2 or back in Ezra and Nehemiah, it was a day of small things. Recall the, the message that God gave through the prophet Haggai in Haggai 2.3, Who was left among you who saw the temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? Well, the promise that God is giving here through Zerubbabel, this this royal, this kingly figure, is that not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, this mountain will be removed and the temple will be built. And Zerubbabel, it says here in verse 9, that he laid the foundation and his hands will finish it. Now that's interesting because... There is another statement in the book of Zechariah, just a few chapters later, that shows that Zechariah himself would not be, in himself, the one that would finish the temple. Turn over to Zechariah 6. <clears throat> now this mentions to us another figure, in many ways another messianic figure by the name of Joshua. Now he was introduced back in Haggai chapter 1 in the first sermon, the sermon uh, that was to be given uh, to Zerubbabel and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak. Joshua is the priestly figure 
Zerubbabel is the kingly figure. And here in Zechariah chapter 6 and verse 11, the focus comes upon Joshua. Now, if we took the time, you could go back to Zechariah chapter 3, uh, and you could read Zechariah 3, and there's a a whole lot more there about, about Joshua. But in Zechariah 6, verse 11, Take the silver and the gold, and make an ornate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now, just kind of make a note here what's happening. We now have a priestly figure wearing a what? A kingly crown. And it's as if earlier we've had Joshua and Zerubbabel somewhat distinct and separate, but now in this vision we have the kingly office and the priestly office now coming together in one particular individual. Then say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne, and thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. What two offices? The priestly office and the kingly office that are now going to be found in Joshua, let me say symbolically or typologically. In other words, Joshua here is to wear this crown, Joshua this priest. He is to wear a crown like he's a king. But then God says, all all this is happening to Joshua. It's it's like a... um, a wordplay so much, but a, but a visual demonstration of something that's going to happen. In Joshua, we see something that's going to happen in the future. Joshua becomes typological of this branch. He's like a sign that points to another. He's like a sign that points to the branch. This branch is a figure. It's an individual. It's a person. And in this person, the branch, the two offices, the kingly and the priestly office are going to come together. And he will be the one who will build the temple, there in verse 13. He will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus, he will be a priest on his throne. And notice it's his throne. It's not someone else's throne. He hasn't usurped this throne. And there'll be a council of peace between the two offices. I find it interesting there that he uses the concept of peace that is going to be brought about by this branch because that's exactly what God said back in Haggai chapter 2, verse 9, when the latter-day glory of the house is greater than the former, the Lord of hosts said, in this place I will give what? I will establish peace. Come back to Zechariah 6, verse 14. Now the crown will become a reminder in the temple of the Lord, in the temple of the Lord to Helena, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. Those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord, and then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Now, this is not an exposition of the book of Zechariah. We're simply trying to illustrate the idea that what Haggai is preaching about, this future day of, of, of judgment and of restoration, of destruction of kingdoms, and of the establishment of Zerubbabel as some kind of kingly-type figure, 
It involves also this image of Joshua coming together, the priestly image, the kingly image coming together in this one individual known as the branch. Now, Zechariah speaks about this one, the branch, back again in Zechariah 3 in verse 8. Zechariah 3, verse 8. Now listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, and these would be the the, the priestly entourage that's around Joshua that he's uh, commented on earlier in chapter 3. They, this priestly group, indeed they are men who are a symbol, for behold, I am going to bring in my servant the branch. Now here's where this symbolic imagery or this sign imagery comes in. Joshua and his priestly entourage that are there are symbolic or are signing or pointing to another that's going to come. And that is this one called the branch. For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua on one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts, and I'll remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. Now again, in the broad context here of Zechariah chapter 3, God is saying to Joshua through the prophet Zechariah that there's going to come a day of peace, restoration, people sitting under their own vines or under their own fig tree. That's this picture of a future day of restoration. God will bring all of this about through one called the branch. Um, not time to go there, but I believe in the book of, uh, I believe it's in the book of Jeremiah. Um, just find a footnote here. I think it's Jeremiah, is it 20, 23? Um, Yeah, Jeremiah chapter 23. This branch is spoken of again, again in a new covenant context of one coming back and making restoration. Now what's interesting here to me is that Zerubbabel himself does not bring the fullness of this about. Yes, Zerubbabel is there. He lays the foundation. He has a part to play in the rebuilding of the temple uh, there in that day and age. But even the Jews themselves did not see Zerubbabel bringing about all the things that are promised here in these texts. A couple of interesting notes by some Jewish writers uh, regarding this particular statement that is made in, um, in Haggai chapter 2 about Zerubbabel, where God says, I will take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, saith the Lord, this, according to some Jewish rabbis, is that is the Messiah. They write, the king Messiah shall come, who is the seed of Zerubbabel, and he shall be the seal of the structure and the end of the kingdoms, as it is said, I will make thee as a signet. Or in Haggai 2.23, the word signet there can also mean the seal. And that would be using the, uh, the idea that the signet ring is to affect the seal. It, it impresses the seal. Those two things are kind of put together. I will make thee as a signet, for I have chosen thee, said the Lord of hosts. For this, no doubt, is said concerning the days of the Messiah. In other words, the Jews are seeing that Zerubbabel does not complete the promise that is being made here. 
Another Jewish writer quoting the above author for the sense of the passage and also adding in some comments on Ezekiel 37, 25 says, For the king Messiah will be David, and he will be Zerubbabel, that he may be a rod going out of their stem. Another Jewish rabbi adds this comment, Without doubt, this is said concerning the expected Messiah who will be the seed of Zerubbabel, and therefore this promise was not at all fulfilled in him, for in the time of this prophecy he was but governor of Judah, and he never rose to greater dignity than what he had then. John Gill makes the comment on this text. He says, indeed, these particular writers wrongly suppose the Messiah is yet to come. They're still looking for a what? They're still looking for a future coming Messiah to to rebuild the temple. And whom they in vain expect and apply this as they do many other prophecies to the coming of Christ in the flesh, which belong to his spiritual appearance in his churches or to his personal coming at the last day. However, this shows the conviction of their minds of the application of this and such prophecies to Messiah, who may in this sense be called Zerubbabel. Let's quickly make one final point, if we can. Point number four. The prophecy is demonstrated as fulfilled, or at least inaugurated, in a new covenant text. And for this, we want to go to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And we'll begin reading in verse 25. Hebrews 12, 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on the earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. And therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire." In this text, the writer of Hebrews explicitly quotes from the book of Haggai and Haggai chapter 2, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And interestingly, here is the point that is repeated in the fourth sermon. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 26 takes this quote from Haggai 2, verse 6, the second sermon, but it's this portion of the second sermon that's re-quoted again in the fourth sermon in Haggai 2, verse 21. I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. This idea of shaking or things being disturbed by God throughout the prophets is expressive of God's intervention in the realm of men. One writer by the name of Baldwin makes the comment that earthquakes 
Earthquakes had early become a symbol for God's supernatural intervention. One might think of the book of Amos in Amos chapter 1 and verse 1, or Amos 8, 8, where an earthquake is indicative and connected with the judgment of God on the northern kingdom, or Amos chapter 9 and verse 15. In the book of Isaiah, there are several places where there are these cosmic-type disturbances and shakings of the earth. In Isaiah chapter 2, verses 13 to 21, Isaiah 13, verse 13, Isaiah 29, verse 6. Or some might recall the book of Joel. The book of Joel speaks about the day of the Lord or a day of future judgment that God is going to render on the southern kingdom in Joel chapter 2, in verse 10. R.T. France makes the comment regarding the language that he calls the language of cosmic collapse. In other words, when everything's beginning to kind of come apart in the world. Language about cosmic collapse is used by the Old Testament prophets to symbolize God's acts of judgment within history with the emphasis on catastrophic political reversals. When he's bringing one kingdom to an end and he's bringing another kingdom to power. Or another writer made the comment regarding Haggai himself here who sees this idea of God shaking the earth but also the heavens. He writes that Haggai foresees the whole universe in a series of convulsions that every nation will gladly part with its treasures and these will be brought to add beauty upon beauty to the temple until it is filled with splendor. One thinks in the book of Haggai there in chapter 2 where it says that he's going to shake not only the earth but also the heavens. He's going to shake all the nations and he'll fill the house with glory. And then it talks about the silver and the gold and the nations coming to the Lord of hosts and God establishing peace in the filling of his house with glory. This will in effect bring peace to the world. Another writer made this comment. He said that the shalom, that this peace that comes, sums up all the blessings of the messianic age when reconciliation with God in his righteous rule will ensure a just and lasting peace. Well, when does this happen? When does this take place? Again, back in Haggai chapter 2, it says, on that day, on that day, God is going to bring the disruption of all the kingdoms of the world, and he's going to establish his own rule through this one that Zechariah refers to as the branch, this priestly king ruler. Some say, according to John Gill, some understand that this will be done at Christ's second coming in judgment. This is going to happen in the future. This is going to happen when Jesus returns and the passing away of the heavens and the earth, which are things that are made or created by the power of God, when there will be a shaking of them so as they will be removed and pass away with great noise. And they interpret that, that clause there of the permanency of the new heavens and the new earth and of the immovable kingdom of glory and never fading inheritance of the saints in their fixed, unalterable, unshaken state. Rather, rather Gill, other writers like Matthew Poole, Matthew Poole and 
Matthew Henry, other scholars, maybe older scholars, don't consider this as a future coming judgment of Christ from our vantage point. Rather, it's a future coming of judgment and restoration from Haggai's vantage point. Haggai's looking forward to a day. To take Haggai looking forward to a day that the writer of Hebrews says is fulfilled in his day and then make us look forward to a future day seems to keep kicking this can down the proverbial road. Rather, to use the phrase of Matthew Poole, he says, when Christ returns and shakes the things of the world that are temporary and establishes his church and his kingdom, he says, those things which cannot be shaken may remain. These better things are the administration of Christ's kingdom, unshakable. His church state, which is heavenly, settled by his own evangelical laws and ordinances, which he hath so fixed by promise as never to be removed till the whole church of Christ be completed with him in heaven. This is why several weeks ago we started in looking at the book of Matthew in the opening verse of Matthew chapter 1, as this is the record of Matthew's statement of the new beginning or the new genesis or the new creation in Jesus Christ. Matthew sees when the Lord Jesus Christ comes into the world, he is going to shake, we could say, shake things up. He is going to, he's going to remove kings and remove powers, threaten kings and threaten powers, and he's going to come and establish his kingdom in the world. This is why when he comes, King Herod is so worried. Because he hears of one who's been born to what? The king of the Jews. This is why when Jesus begins to preach, he doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is coming way later. No, he says the kingdom of heaven is what? It's at hand. It's right here. It's among you. The king is here. The kingdom is here. And I as the Messiah will come and I will build my church. Well, how might we respond? Well, let me just give you one verse. Therefore, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 28. Therefore, since we receive, we, we in the church, we today under the Lord Jesus Christ as our covenant head, we in the church under Christ as our Zerubbabel, our Joshua, our priest's king, and might we add our prophet, priest, and king, we under this Lord Jesus Christ, since we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Well, let's pray together. Father, we bless your name, and we thank you for our priest king, the Lord Jesus Christ, that branch of old who has come among men, has established his kingdom, and he is building his church, and it will indeed truly branch out to encompass all the nations of the world. Men from every tribe and tongue and language and nation will come and bring their riches, if you will, which are simply the, the riches that you've given to them, will bring them to the king to display his glory in his everlasting, unshakable kingdom. Oh God, when we see things in the world not as they should be, let us be reminded that we are in an unshakable kingdom. We have refuge in our God. We have shelter from every storm. 
And, O God, Christ himself provides for us all we need in his kingdom. We bless him. We praise him. I pray that you would help us to have hearts that are full of gratitude for our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.